On the show today, Tanya Latanzio, the Director of Innovative Global Education. She's here to talk about the work she does helping schools and teachers become great at what they do. When Tanya reflects back on early days in her life, she has great appreciation for growing up in a bicultural family as it helped her to develop a deep curiosity of culture and travel from a young age. This love of travel would help open the doors of possibility for Tanya and provide her with many wonderful experiences that allowed her to see the world and learn more deeply about people and culture. Tanya knew early on that she wanted to become an educator and after university was willing to take the risk to leave Australia to find one of her first teaching jobs in London, England. It was this experience that opened many doors for Tanya, and as she continued on her path in education, she began to develop a deep appreciation and passion for teaching, and for creating classroom environments that inspired young people to take more control of their own learning journeys. Tanya's path in education would continue to evolve for her in many different ways, ultimately leading her to take on a position working for the Asia-Pacific IB office as a professional development trainer. And it was through this experience that Tanya was able to further develop her craft and lead many different workshops for teachers around the world. She loved being able to visit schools, meet different educators, and help them to develop their own teaching practice. Tanya moved on from the IB and launched her own consulting agency and is now Director of Innovative Global Education. In this role, she works as an educational consultant throughout the world, helping to develop and conduct professional learning for teachers and leadership, modeling pedagogy in classrooms and working intensively with teaching teams through mentoring and coaching, to improve planning, teaching, and assessment. As an advocate of inquiry, she works with educators to provide students with an education that is purposeful, meaningful, and relevant to their lives, where students have opportunities to be motivated and have agency of their own learning. As you listen to this conversation today, you will hear the passion that Tanya has for the work that she does. She shares deep insight in this episode, and it is sincerely my hope that any educator or educational leader listening to this will have takeaway value that they can apply in the work that they do. I want to thank Tanya for taking the time to be on the podcast and for being willing to share her story and the work that she does. And with that, let's jump right into this discussion with Tanya Latanzio. Okay, Tanya, we've been uh, trying to organize this for quite some time. We had technical difficulties the first time around. Last week, my schedule changed. But as you said, three times lucky, and here you are. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's lovely that that third time 
is lucky. Finally, we got there. It took a while. Yeah. And uh, just for some background, uh, you and I met, it must have been the first time we met was at Western International School of Shanghai many years ago. I was working with the PE team and you were there, I think, with Andrea at the time. Mm-hmm. That's right. And running some PD for uh, Tonya Mansfield. Yes, that's right. We were organizing some innovative global education events at the school um, for Tanya. She'd organized it, but of course she'd left the school by then. And so we just literally met in the hallway. We we talked for a couple minutes and that was it. But I've I've seen your work over the years and you're doing great things. And that's why I wanted to have you uh, on the show to have an opportunity to share the work that you're doing with your consulting uh, organization and um, to first, though, uh, just to set some context uh, for the listeners, I'd love it if you could share something about early days. Um, so whatever you want us to know about early days in your life and where you grew up and what early days were like for you and what kind of student you were, anything you, you want us to know. Okay. Um, well, I grew up in uh, Bulleen in Melbourne in Australia. Um, my father was Italian. He came out from Italy very early on, and my mother is Australian. And I think part of that leads to um, an understanding of what what it means um, to, you know, my dad talked a lot about the racism he had when he came to Australia. He came in the 1950s where they were putting camps straight away. And, he, um, and I think from that what stemmed was this um, just incredible acceptance of people and that you should never be judging anyone. And so I think, um, and and also my mum and dad, him being Italian, her being Australian, um, you know, they copped a lot of grief around that as well, being together. And so I think that that instills with you this idea of, you know, um, just that, that, you know, you don't judge people. Everyone everyone can be who they want to be and that's okay. So I think that's a very, very big part of who I am. But I think what that also did is instill in me this idea that I wanted to meet people from different worlds. I wanted to travel. Um, I travelled when first when I was 21 for a whole year, then again when I was 26, and then, of course, moved overseas permanently in 2000 and haven't been back yet. Although I love Australia, it's not that. But there's there's something about, I think, being in different places meeting different people, hearing stories that changes you. And I think um, hearing my my dad's story in particular and my mum's story and then that understanding and that empathy you have with that. So I think a lot of what I am now and the way I try and connect with people really does stem from that. So I feel very fortunate. And I went, I went to a school that was very eclectic, had everyone there, and that was also wonderful to have that experience. And you know, and then, um, yeah, university, and then all I wanted to do was travel. And so I was really, really fortunate to be able to do that as, you know, a young person at 21, and it just never really left me, I think, just this idea of being in places where you get to meet people who have just such interesting stories to share. So would it be fair to say that you definitely uh, gravitated towards having an openness to new experiences from a young age? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it, it also helps that, you know, you have parents who are very supportive to say, you know, well, what do you want to do? You know, um, if you're not happy with this, what do you want to do? How would you like to change it? There was never, you know, I think um, there was never this idea that you had to do something or you had to be something. So I think you're, you're given this kind of free reign 
And there was much more of a focus, I think, on on being happy and being a good person than being something or them saying that you needed to be something. So I think that comes into it as well. And, you know, and I mean, I for some reason, I don't know why, but ever since I was, I can't remember not wanting to be a teacher. And I have no idea where that stemmed from. But I really, when I look back, I, I remember year 12 specifically just knowing that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a primary school teacher and that was my pathway. And, um, you know, and then three years at university, I did that, then finally graduated. So, you know, it's it's interesting the way when people say, oh, what was it? I can't remember one moment. I don't know if it was some of teachers maybe in my schooling that I had early on. Yeah, so it's it's funny where you end up, I think. Yeah, yeah. Experiences. When you think of yourself, like let's look at elementary school, um, that openness to experience and having that rich Italian background, yet the Australian cultural background as well. How did that show up for you in school? Like what type of learner were you? And um, when you reflect back on early days, um, what was schooling like for you? Oh, I was, I, I wasn't a good student. I can honestly say I was, I just talked a lot, which back then, you know, you weren't allowed to do. I spent a lot of time outside the class in primary school. Um, I, I think in year 11, I actually got banned from the library because I was too loud in there. And, and I think, you know, so I, I don't, I don't necessarily think I was, it's not that I wasn't a good student. I just wasn't engaged. It was, you know, you're, you're in a school that was back then where it was very much, you were told what to do, you know. I remember um, in history the teacher would write notes from her notes on the board and then we would write those notes in our notebook, right, and you think, what, what is this? And you're wondering, like, you know, we're all in rows. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I just, that none of that really appealed to me at all. And um, so, you know, I, when I talk about sort of like the academics, I think it was much later in life where I really started to love learning and I think part of that, was when you become a teacher and you see the joy you can bring to learning that you may not have necessarily experienced much in your own education system that you were a part of. Um, there were some good teachers, but the the majority of it was that's the way it was. You just were given transformation of information. That's all it really was, right? And then you sat an exam, you did it, and you don't remember anything afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like we went to school at the same time because that was <laughs> experience as well and when you when you think of that I once had a conversation with a teacher that chose to become a teacher because all of the shitty teachers in their life yeah yeah and I think it maybe that's part of it too right you just want a better experience yeah. for, for other kids mm. yeah. and and you're you're called to kind of do that work and for me it started out as coaching so when I, I played American football uh, through high school and then I played uh, I took a couple of years off before going to university and I worked, but I played for a travel team in the city. And then that was um, when I first went back and started coaching my old high school team. And I realized right away, I loved coaching. Yeah. And I felt so much meaning in it and I felt so fulfilled and I felt I was pretty good at it. And then I went um, to university, played there, but still coached. So the playing field at the university where we would practice every day was right beside my old high school. So I would go from coaching my high school team, which was cool because the kids would see me run, a, run away from our high school practice. And I would run right to the locker room to change and take the field. And then the kids that I coached would come and watch the university. Oh, nice. practice. 
but it was definitely something that called me, but I was really drawn to, uh, I guess I remembered the really terrible coaches that I had and the, the terrible teachers, and I didn't want to be like them. Mm. That's what really drove me in, in developing a style that I felt was um, was very caring. And, and yeah. you know, that's where I really started to, to navigate my way through coaching, which then led to teaching. So Hi. when you think about leaving, you said you knew that you wanted to be a teacher. Um, did you travel first and then go to university or did you? Uh, no, I, straight, straight to university. Um, I was also, it's interesting you talk about coaching because um, I was very involved in basketball. I was a basketball referee for, for quite a, a, a long time. And, you know, there's so much coaching that goes on in that experience as well, right? And it's all about building relationships. But I also coached a lot of young kids in basketball as well. So, you know, you don't think about these things at the time, right? But when you reflect back now, you sort of think, oh, that might have had something to do with that decision early on as well because I would have been coaching by the time I was about 14, 15, you know, younger students um, in basketball. And um, and so, yeah, so that definitely could have had an impact, as you just say, on in a decision but without realising it. Right, yeah. So yeah. talk about your first couple of teaching jobs. So where, where were your first couple of teaching jobs? Well, what happened in Australia is when we graduated um from university, there were actually no teaching jobs, very, very few. Um, it was the time where they closed schools. So it was very disheartening. We had this whole group of teachers that just qualified. And I think, you know, out of that whole cohort, maybe three people ended up with jobs. So it was really difficult. So I ended up getting a job actually in an, in a childcare centre, um, working with the three to five-year-olds, which like amazing right because all of a sudden you're with these young children and it's so different than the experiences if you've had previously in your university years and so whilst I wasn't at a school I was still really involved in education and working with students and I and you know it's it's it it really inspired the passion I have now for early years so having the opportunity to experience that and to have had that was really powerful. And um, and then I moved, so that was about six months working there, seven months working there, and then I moved to London and did the whole substitute teaching over there, which um, was an experience, I guess would be one way to put it. And, you know, a new school every day. Um, I think if anything, you hone your um, classroom management skills in those situations because you don't know what you're dealing with day after day after day. You haven't got time to build relationships because you're really not there for an extended period of time. And um, so, so I did that for kind of a year with some travelling and then I came back and got, again, there were, weren't many jobs in school, so I got another job working in a, another kindergarten, and which, again, was, was incredible to have a chance to work with the early years um, and, and to be in that situation. Then I went overseas again, did the same thing. Then I came back and finally got a job in an elementary school, full-time uh, working in Melbourne in a low socioeconomic area of Melbourne as well, um, which was wonderful. It's I find in schools like that, um, the collegiality and the collaboration and the support you have for each other is just so incredible because you're dealing with situations that, that are difficult daily. You know, so that was, that was a wonderful experience. And then I ended up in Indonesia. 
three years after that. So, yeah, in a PYP school, what? never heard of the PYP. And done? Oh. Yeah, no, in um, a tiny school called Bogor. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's called the International School of Bogor and um, it was a PYP school. And I think after my first year I was asked if I'd be PYP coordinator of the school. And, and again, we're tiny. I mean, you know, what an amazing experience. We planned every unit together, the whole team, because there were only four teachers. Mm, cool. So you could do that, right? So every, every moment's just this new learning experience. You had, because you had such small classes, you had this freedom really to try things that I think sometimes you have constraints in bigger schools that you don't get to do that. And so, you know, all those things that you'd wanted to do as a teacher that you weren't able to do, we were, were really trialling lots of different things. And I think it's probably at that school where, you know, you start to realise the amazing impact um, you can have on students when you've got a little, or you give them more freedom, I guess that's what it is. And you don't feel that you're, you're, you're tightening the teaching situation because you've been told that's what you need to do. So you're almost free to be yourself as a teacher and start to develop your creativity as a teacher that I think sometimes in other schools you don't get to do as much because of whatever's going on in the school. How do you think your um, travel and your learning experiences have, have ultimately shaped the work that you're doing now? When you consider your toolkit, you know, so through your experiences, I can just listen to your story and, and think, oh, you must have learned so many things. But, you know, in reflecting back, not knowing it at the time, but in reflecting back now, talk about that toolkit you were building within yourself and what some of the, the big tools were that you were developing without knowing it at the time? Yeah, I, I think um, one of the biggest toolkits you develop in that situation is just understanding the power of listening, which, as you know, as a coach is just so important. And coaching is such a big part of my role as well, as you know. And so, you know, really listening to understand, not, not listening to lead or not listening to be objective but listening to really try and understand and and I think that's just so powerful because then then what you do is you hear things that you wouldn't necessarily hear and people tend to open up more when when you're able to do that I mean when I go back to Melbourne and even here but even Melbourne you've got so many different nationalities and I get in an Uber and I'm just fascinated by people where they've come from how did you get here what was your what was it like and I just think you know with each experience you grow and and I've been really I just think there's something about storytelling that we need to be bringing back to our classes I think you know if we want empathy if we want understanding we need to hear people's stories and they're so diverse and so unique it's so special and they help us build relationships um, with others so I think that's something that definitely came out of that um, I think the other thing was just you know an acceptance of differences that you know which is so important in education I think um, so important when we work with students is understanding that they, they shouldn't be the same we don't want them all to be the same you know you've got to value each student for who they are much like when you're working with teachers like they're all coming from different backgrounds um, you know and you've got to respect that and understand that and value that I think that's really important it's not about some um, you know, I say when I work with schools, it's about, well, what do they need? Where are they at? This isn't a one-off, I, you know, I'm going to come in and do what I want. It's about how can I meet your needs where you are and what you're doing, where you are at the moment, where your staff is, how can we help them move? So I think those two things are really, really important, um, taking from 
as you learned without, as you say, realising it, but then moving it into where you are now in this space. Yeah, Definitely. you know, what, what connects with me immediate, immediately is uh, Daniel Goleman's work around emotional intelligence. I just heard an interview with him a couple of days ago. He's brilliant, right? Mm. Uh, I, I heard him describe that any great leader or great coach or great teacher, they're in it. They're completely invested in um, making the other person better. Mm. You know, it's about the other person and uh, a great coach or a great leader is is in it in a way and invested in a way that the person knows 100% that this coach or this teacher or this leader truly cares about me. They're in it to make me better at what I do. Yeah, yeah. They're not in it for their own agendas. Um, so, you know, when I hear you describe everything you just described it is deeply rooted in emotional intelligence. And Daniel Coleman talks about the fact that our, our IQ is kind of baked in, you know, our cognitive um, IQ mm -hmm. it's, is baked in more or less, but emotional intelligence is a skill that we can develop and deepen throughout our lifetime. And all of the evidence now shows that the most impactful people in any role are the ones that have high emotional intelligence, but emotional intelligence can be um, developed and um, built on. So when you think about emotional intelligence in your work, how does that play out? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's um, really important because you, you're dealing with diverse people from you know different backgrounds, different experiences and and it's about it's about connecting and I think it's it's and again you know I I've got better at this I, I certainly you know I think as you said you learn through experience I want anything like I woke up and you know I was able to do all this um it's it's it takes time and and I think um that it, it is about building relationships and in this role you have to do that quite quickly and you have to develop a sense of trust. And, and I, I think it's the same in our classrooms, right? If our students don't trust us, if those teachers don't trust what we're going to do, then you just get a shutdown and a block. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that ability to relate to people, to quickly build those relationships is key. It's key to, to all the work I think that we do as educators. Um, you know, we know, right, this, the best, the students that learn the best, the ones that have really strong relationships with their teachers, because, um, you know, they, they want to, they're motivated to learn because they understand that relationships are really important. And I feel the same. And I think, you know, the, the, other thing is it's respecting where people are at as well and sort of saying, well, you know, this is where you're at, fantastic. Where do we need to go next and how can we get there and how can I help you get there? And also it's that understanding that I'm passionate about kids and I, you know, and so I always say to teachers, when I work with you, I get excited because I know that what's going to happen is this is going to go back into students and it's going to make a difference for them. So I think, you know, just really showing that and, well, I, I hope that's what comes through. I hope it comes through that I'm passionate about students yeah. and, you know, and that I um, that I do focus on building those relationships, I think, which has been really hard and I'm sure you're finding it now as a consultant now 
Um, you can build relationships online, of course, but there is something about a face-to-face situation that, um, you know, you you find out a lot more about people because you have the more, more time in between things rather than sort of an hour on, now we're gone. Yeah, yeah for sure. And when you think about your role as a consultant, um, what is your advice to any consultant listening to this or any educational leader or team lead, department head, whatever, in using your own story of coaching and your own journey and your own personal narrative, um, what do you feel that you need to be aware of within yourself at times or what obstacles might present themselves um, that get in the way of you doing a better job with the schools you're working with and the teachers you're consulting? So, you know, what do you need to be aware of within yourself? Um, I think I think you you need to be aware. Number one, I think it's situational, right? All schools are situational, and you need to, you know, before I work with any school, it's always really important to have a conversation about what's going on. You know, where's the school at? In particular, at the moment, right? With um, what what's happening in the world, teachers are at different points. They're doing different things. They're in different situations, and you really have to sort of understand that and where they're coming from. I mean, if you've been teaching online since March you know, 2020, you're in a very different situation than if you've been face-to-face teaching, you know, even on and off. And so I think you've really got to hone into that well-being of teachers at the moment and just assure them that they're doing the best they can given the situation. And I think that's a really important thing is to to actually tell them, you know, it's okay. And, you know, so if things don't go well, it's okay. It's We're in some, some of you are in just survival mode, right, at the moment and doing the best you can. So I think that's a really important, in particular for now, mm-hmm. you know, where, where teachers are. And then I think the the other, so it's all very situational and I think you need to find out the situation, um, you know, and working out then from there what we can have. But, again, then it's about asking the right questions, um, as a way to find out and then standing back and listening and thinking then, well, then where do we need to go next with this mm-hmm. now that I've taken the time to listen? I think sometimes, and, you know, and it's, and it's hard sometimes because you do have your own agenda, but there's no point going in there with that agenda if you don't bring people with you. Yeah. Do you know, you know, often, often I used to, when I remember when I worked for the IB, the International Baccalaureate, um, that you know, we would run the role of the PYP coordinator, for instance, and it'd be you can know these documents inside out. It's how you present these to your team and how you move your team forward that counts. Mm -hmm. And that's all about that listening to understand, finding out where teachers are at and working out where do we go next with this as opposed to making an assumption, number one, that they know something or they don't know something and having your own agenda moving full steam ahead yeah yeah for sure my my wife right now is doing uh, an internship mentorship program with uh, dr gabor mate who's a a famous canadian uh, psychologist uh, who created a framework called compassionate inquiry right lovely it's it's work and his documentary just came out a few months ago i'll share the link with you it's free right now um, and his documentary is uh, entitled The Wisdom of Trauma and how, um, especially in education, that we need trauma-informed education and we need to deeply unpack what trauma is 
and how we can better understand the impact of trauma. Um, and in the work that she's done, uh, so she completed the first um, certification part last year, and now she's doing the year-long mentorship. And one thing um, Gabor says is, as a therapist, you have to be deeply self-aware of your own triggers. And if yes. you don't understand your own triggers, how can you be expected to work with people in deeply impactful ways? So my question to you and your experiences over the years, I know, like full disclosure, I have been triggered by some teachers. Um, and, you know, you, you sometimes work with, you know, whether they're resistant or they're not, mm-hmm. they're not understanding oh, the ideas you're presenting or not interested in, in applying them. And you sometimes, I'm just speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for anybody else. And then I'm kind of left wondering, do they not understand what I'm presenting? Have I not presented it well enough? Um, Are they just flat out resistant? Do they not care about what they're doing? You know, you start to have all these internal questions and then the Mm. internal chatter in the moment. (laughs) Absolutely. So what Gabor says is in knowing your own triggers, you can fully disclose that in the moment and say, you know, like I just need to take a a pause right now because I must admit that that something has been triggered in me and this has nothing to do with you but this is about what I'm experiencing as a result of our conversation right now to try to move it along he's very skilled at it but when you think about your own experiences over the years how have you learned to develop um, more self-awareness around your triggers and how to deal with those triggers in in a proactive way yeah, I, I think, I mean, of course, you, there are always those situations, right, where you're, you know, um, not always, but a lot of times there's there's resistance to what you're saying. Um, you know, teachers who, and, and I get it, rightly so, I've been doing it this way for ages, it works, why would I change it, right? Mm-hmm. And or, or those that feel, you know, what they're doing is so good that there's no need to change it, or, you know, and so I think that's always going to be there. Um, I think, you know, in terms of myself and, you know, I would honestly say I, I've i got a lot better at that. I used to, you know, like my facial expression would just be like, and then all of a sudden as soon as you do that, you, you're starting on the negative straight away, right? So I've learnt, so I hope I've learned, but other people are probably out there that I've worked with going, no, you didn't. Your facial expression was really off the chart. So sorry if it was for people I worked with, but, um, you know, I think it, it is about just, it's hard to control your emotions in those moments. And I think you've got to be very, very aware of those emotions. But you've also got to understand where people are coming from and why they're like that. And I I think, I mean, I have never thought of that, oh, wait a minute, pause. I've done a lot of questioning further to try to understand. So often I'll say, look, I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I just need a little bit more background information in order to know what you're talking about before I can respond. So I do a lot of that in those situations because I think, like you said, am I missing something? Am I saying something wrong? Am I pushing this too fast? So I think sort of stepping back and and really going back to, okay, can you just explain that to me again? And giving yourself that space, I found, can really help you and, um, you know, just sort of take control of that and think, okay, where to now? And, again, that listening very carefully and trying to find those moments in those conversations that you're hearing 
to then be able to come back with, right? And, of course, it doesn't always work. I'm not saying it does. But when you get to that moment, um, I remember having this conversation with the teacher one time and, you know, she's doing dinosaurs and I was like, but, you know, that's really interesting. What are what do they do with dinosaurs? She's like, oh, you know, it's really exciting. You know, they we, we do dinosaur bones. We do this, all la, la. And I go, yeah, what do what do they end up understanding about dinosaurs? She's explained. And so just, you know, not not in a rude way, but just trying to sort of unpack what's the what's the learning going on here. And she was so in the end, she goes, You're right. That's it's yeah, no, yeah, I've got to stop doing that. It's got to be a bigger idea there. So you know, sometimes I think just probing a little further and and helping them understand can help. And then just realizing that you you can't sometimes you just can't change everyone. And not that you're trying to change people, but you can't move everybody on. And sometimes you've got to be okay with that and that idea that hopefully they'll see it within their classrooms. And so when you leave a school, you're trying to set up systems, right? And processes with the people that are there to keep this going while you're not there, to keep that momentum going as a way to to share practice where hopefully seeing it or hearing about it might trigger a change. Yeah, yeah. I had one instance uh, years ago where I was working with um, a teacher in a school and uh, I won't even say the subject area, but the teacher had done a 12-week unit into one thing. It was a single subject and it was all based on control and compliance. Mm -hmm. Mm. And, you know, literally um, modeling what to do and then everybody repeating what to do. Well, we unit, and I went in there, I think it was the 11th week, and I was told to challenge the teacher to get them to think of something different to do. And the teacher's response was, okay, Mr. Expert, why don't you just tell me what to do then? Seems like you've been teaching longer than me. And this teacher was, I'll say he was, he was male. He was larger than I was. And he was looking down at me using his physical presence yeah. to intimidate me. And I was like, well, this is not going to work. So I'm going to stop right now. And uh, I just walked out of the room because I was triggered. I felt yeah. it was going to yeah. be our fight. <laughs> you know? like I was like, yeah. Yeah, I, I have cortisol. I'm bathing in cortisol right now. Yeah, and I just need to walk away. So, yeah. Um, anyways, needless to say, that that was the worst experience I had. But um, but on a minor level, we we do experience you know resistance at times. So it's working your way through the resistance. Absolutely. And also trying to remove the emotion from it, right, which can be really difficult because you do take it as a personal affront sometimes. And yeah. so I think it's, you know, and, and you, you you know what it's like. Often in workshops people will try and challenge you a lot, you know, and, and sometimes I said, look, we can agree to disagree and let's discuss this more at break time. Yeah. No, happy to have that conversation. So, but it, it can, it is that idea, I think, of trying not to get too emotional about it um, yeah. yourself and trying to, you know, but it's hard. It's really hard. Sure. Jim Knight uh, was on the podcast a couple of times over the, the last uh, few months. And uh, I was I was taking his course with the other Petco's at schools, uh, the Radical Learners, the first 90 days of coaching. Fantastic coach. Uh, of course, sorry. And, and he talks about instructional coaching, obviously, in this um, this webinar series. And he talks in particular about some experiences he's had where he he's leading a workshop for teachers 
And then there'll be the teacher, the disgruntled teacher that walks in with a pile of papers and drops the papers down on the desk and just makes it obvious that they're marking the papers, you know, and they're not paying attention. Or there's a person, he said one time at the back of the, the workshop, who was literally reading the sports section, not paying attention. And he said, you know, I learned not to take it personal because it's not about marking papers. It's not about reading the sports section. It's about I'm taking control of my own time. Yeah, absolutely. So you look at the underlying message that's being delivered, which allows him to depersonalize, to turn off the light switch Mm -hmm. when it comes to emotions. And no, it's not about Jim Knight. It's about about recognizing the deeper um, issue that is trying to be conveyed in that moment and then working with that. Yeah, absolutely. That's because you don't know what's going on. In the, I mean, you're going into schools, right, which are really difficult places sometimes. Um, you know, not everyone's happy with what's going on and that can often come reflected in when you're working with teams as well. And so I do do that. That's a great way to think about it. You know, because I, I mean, I'm sure you're the same, you know, um, in particular when I was first a PYP workshop leader, like I'd read every evaluation form and there'd be one negative comment out of 45 and I would have a meltdown. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm terrible, you know. But so, so it, I just think as human beings we tend to focus on the negative and we forget that, you know, 80%, 90%, actually more people in this room are really engaged, but it's just so hard for, again, that emotion, right, not to impact you in some way. Yeah. And that's the work. I'm just looking back here at my bookshelf. I like to pull out books at certain times um, and I can't find it in this moment, but it's Flourish uh, by Dr. Martin Seligman, Positive Psychology. And he said that that it's such a skill to be able to, you know, you build your capacity to scan for the good in your life. Mm, mm. We're pre-programmed to look at what's not working or in this case, the one negative piece of feedback or a couple pieces of negative feedback, even though 80% of the participants really had a great experience. So rather than looking at what's not working, that's why Dr. Martin Seligman created the positive psychology movement because clinical psychology was all about what's screwed up about people, why people are so messed up, and then how clinical psychologists can and create interventions that help work on what's wrong. And Marty was like, no, you know, I'm going to create a movement that looks at what's mm, working. Nice. And then yeah. Evidence behind that. So it's like scanning for the good in your life is such a skill to develop and, and teaching kids how to scan for the good. Yeah. You know, absolutely. To build an empowering, positive, personal self-narrative. Right. And I, I just, you know, I think, um, you know, I work when I work with teachers as well. You know, I feel like there's there's so much going on in these students' lives right at the moment that 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 can be so negative. And so I'm, you know, I'm really always saying, you know, so whenever we're looking at units of work or looking at something, it's like, oh, let's look at the solutions that are happening. Let's focus on the positive because if we keep focusing on the negative. We're not going to show students that there's a way out of this. So we're not, they need to know the good work people are doing. You know, I often used to think about, um, you know, in PYP, you'd look down sharing the planet. I thought, oh, my gosh, by the time I get to 11, I'd be, like, so depressed because you know, all these units were just so negative, whereas I think now we really need to look at solution orientation going on in the world and really making sure we're putting that in front of students all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great segue into um, your company. And that's what I want to dive into now. 
So Innovative Global Education, uh, I'm going to read your mission statement and then tell us about, um, I guess, what I, what I like to ask authors when I have them on the show, um, when they're talking about the book they've written, I always ask them what the process was like taking what was in their head and actually putting pen to paper to start the, the writing journey. So your mission is to ensure sustainable educational innovation and development by providing creative and practical solutions for educational organizations. So let's double click on that mission statement and let's talk about um, what that means to you in, in the work that you do. And just like an author puts pen to paper to write a book, how did you take this idea and eventually make it a reality? Mm. Um, the, the mission statement really came about because when when we worked for the IB and it was such a privilege, I, 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 I had more of a learning growth in five years, I think, than I did, you know, previously before any education experience I'd had before that because you were going into so many different schools. Was that in The Hague? No, when I worked in Asia Pacific. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I worked for the IB from I think 2005 to 2011 as one of the PYP managers and then the professional development manager. And you were going into these schools and you were just, just what an amazing experience, what a privilege, uh, what an honour. But it was always either a two-day workshop or you go in for a visit and then you're gone. Hmm. And what we'd find, we'd often come back to schools, you know, three years later for the evaluation visit, you're like, what happened? And so the whole idea of sustainability came around this idea that, you know, when we work with schools, we want to ensure what we embed keeps going, that, you know, it doesn't change. So what practices can we put in place? What can we put in place within the school when we work with schools? And, you know, even if you're there and you're going back six months later, what are we putting in place to make sure that there's something in place that when we come back, there's not this. So that's where really the sustainability part came in. I think the you're always looking for innovation in teaching and learning. I think that's part of what we do, right? We're looking for, um, you know, understanding the psychology of learning, understanding everything that's out there, then how do we innovate with that? But to me, it's, it's primarily about, you know, how do we engage students? How do we motivate students? How do we get students to want to learn? Um, how can we create a conceptual framework for curriculum that's actually interesting, that's relevant to their lives? How can we use interest-based learning in our learning? And I think to me it's all of that. Uh, and, again, not so it's a one-off, but it's something that we're, we embed into our, what we do. I just find so much in education is just this, you know, oh, we've, we've got a program we do once a week that will fix it. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's an add-on. And what we want to try and do is embed these ideas so they just become a part of the learning, not, you know, this add-on we do on a Friday afternoon, you know, to be creative for, you know, 30 minutes. Where so, does the I, curriculum, yeah. Where does the curriculum sit here for you? Um, look, I, I think you've got different schools have, are in different situations with curriculum and I think you have to be very aware of that. Um, going into schools. I do a lot of work with curriculum, taking the curriculum and creating a conceptual framework. Um, I think, you know, Kath Murdoch talks about this, right? Know your curriculum, mm -hmm. right? You need to know your curriculum really well, number one. But also I think what happens is teachers tend to teach to the curriculum and that's all they do. 
And what I like to do is create units that go beyond the curriculum. If you're working with the curriculum I'm talking about and you have to cover your curriculum and you have to have units around your scope and sequence documents because all schools are in different places. You could also have interest-based units, of course, as well, where you then go to your curriculum. But if we're building from the curriculum, I really like to make sure that these units are broad when I create them with teachers, that we're allowing for personalised learning within that, we're allowing for students' interests within that. And again, it's within the scope because what I say to them, if you're only teaching a curriculum, kids don't get to blow your mind. Yeah. And what we want is we want this learning where kids, and if you trust, right, it's against that trust, you don't need the control trust, students will take these units and they will blow your mind. So... Uh, it's okay for curriculum to have a place, but it's an understanding that you can go beyond that. You don't need to be constrained by it. And that's where I think you get those teachers who are so worried about covering the curriculum. They're forgetting this idea that actually kids can go way beyond that if we give them an opportunity. And what comes to mind there is like I had Dr. Richard Ryan on a podcast from self-determination theory last year. And you know, obviously, self-determination theory of uh, motivation, human motivation rooted in three human fundamental needs, autonomy, relatedness, mm-hmm. competence. So I also think of um, Dr. Young Zhao, who was on my podcast, and he just wrote a book called Learners Without Borders. And we talked in particular about the curriculum is um, just there as a guidepost, you know, it's just there as a guidepost. And and that we have to personalize it. We can hear it till we're blue in the face. And we know that that's what we need to do. But what does it look like um, in a practical way? And what Richard talked about, Richard Ryan, was this idea that the curriculum, I know you said that it shouldn't cons- provide constraints, but it, it kind of, it is the goalpost, you know? Yeah, yeah. There are constraints there, but how can you um, work in a way that, um, provides kids with genuine autonomy and, you know, the science behind developing relationships. We've already talked about that and that the need for every student to feel as though they're competent. Hmm. And then that requires the differentiation piece. So, you know, differentiation piece and, and meeting the kids at their entry point. So speak to the importance of those things and how you try to continue to develop these important discussions to um, keep learning moving forward yeah I well I you know I think part of it is it's in the it's in the design of those units right number one it really is and um, you know I, I as you know I work with a lot of schools work with a lot of schools that are that are using conceptual units and and they're so narrow that they don't allow that scope if what you're talking about and that's where I think we get the issue where um, you know, oh, but we, you know, we're trying, but it's not working. And often it's just because the, the unit's not allowing it. So I think that number one, it's a re it's a reconceptualization of the curriculum, firstly, and really making sure that what we're putting out in front of students is broad enough that all can access. Right. And because we're 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 talking about you know, EAL learners, we're talking about learners, you know, who may be challenged by different things. And so we really want to make sure that whatever we're creating, it's accessible to all. And then what we need to be doing and what teachers don't do very often is when we come to plan, we just start planning. We don't take into consideration 
what's necessarily happened, right? And to me, the shift needs to be around we've got to stop planning these activities and really consider what's happened this week. What did we notice with our students? Where are your students at? What's happened in your class? And therefore, based on that, what do we need to plan next to challenge all learners? because they're all coming in from different entry points. And we all know all learners need to be challenged, right? But what we tend to do is we meet as a team and because it's so rushed, it's like, let's plan. And so everybody's planning the same thing for five classes. Like, how is that even possible? Um, you know, so it's that idea that I talk about it, like, you know, we're, we're not planning for students, we're planning in response to students. And if we want to make sure we're doing that, that reflection time is more important than putting a bunch of activities into our planning. And so I think there needs to be that dialogue about what's happening in the class. You know, we need to be collecting evidence of what's happening in the class. Um, you know, so I think it's feeding into what we're doing. What are the questions coming up? What are the interests coming up that we're really noticing? How do we incorporate that into the learning? Um, because ultimately, if you're not doing that, it's just a teacher-led unit. Yeah, and, and you know, what's really interesting is, uh, in particular, working with PE teachers who are great, you know, oftentimes they're, they're coaches, so they're great at brainstorming activities. Like, you know, they know at least 101 ways to play tag with a noodle, a pool noodle, right? But it's not about playing... Uh, tag 101 different ways and I've, I've tried to have some discussions with um, PE departments before where they walk away frustrated because they haven't planned the activities for the next week so they felt that nothing was accomplished when what we did was we tried to create this rich dialogue around where is learning at right now mm. how are we differentiating learning how are your lowest level students, your low entry point students, how are they finding access in ways that are relevant to them? Whereas as Ron Richards said, the high ceiling students, yeah, absolutely. How, how are you uh, planning to meet their needs? And now considering all of that, what will learning look like next week, right? So just like you said, you, you said responsive, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... And, and and that's, and that's going to be different for every classroom. For And that's, you know, when I sort of say this, oh, but we need consistency in classrooms. It's like, well, you have consistency because um, you know where you're going with the learning. You, you've got, but how you get there, that's that should be different. That should not be the same. And it should be broad enough to bring in a repertoire of learners. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with um, some of the units, if you like, or or some that the teaching is that it doesn't do that all the time. It hits some kids, but not all kids. Yeah, and, and teachers are in different places with what they, they need. And that's the thing, just like we talk about students and their own entry points. When you have a grade level team of nine teachers in a school or oh, eight hi. teachers, then they also have their own entry points to teaching based on their experiences and their backgrounds. So it's like, how do you find that balance? So what does that look like? 
Yeah, I think it's it's that idea, right? You've got to you you if you're used to you know this sort of style of teaching, you can't jump to here. No one's expecting you to, right? So I think it's scaffolding learning for teachers as well. And and I you know whenever I work with teachers, I'm just like you're doing inquiry already. Trust me, it's happening in your classrooms. You're maybe not recognizing it when it's happening. Um, so it's also sort of saying, well, let's look at what's working like what we think does fit into that realm that you might be doing at the moment rather than this sort of starting with a negative deficit, right? Like, you know, when none of you are doing anything, you know, and then building from there with them because you, you you know, I mean, moving from that to now I'm going to let my kids have a load of choice and we're going to do interest-based, like that's a huge, right? So it's, you know, it's just under understanding it can happen little by little. So it's very much a scaffolding, I think, and understanding when you work with different learners or at different learning points and you've got to come in to that point and be very respectful that, you know, I, it's very rarely I meet a teacher who doesn't want what's best for their kids, right? They, they all want to get better. They just, if you've never seen it, how do you know possibilities or what you can do? Hmm. When you think about your website, uh, take us through where people can find the website and what they will find once they're there. Yeah, so um, we have a website, um, innovativeglobaled.org. What's there is a a list of events that are coming up. We also have a lot of downloadable uh, PDFs that really put a focus on teaching and learning, put a focus on inquiry, put a focus on conceptual learning that are available. And in that website also we have um, some products you can buy. There are some units for specialist teachers, single subject teachers. You'll field there um, as well. There are some concept strategies there as well. So, And we're, we're always looking to add to that and to build on that. And there's a link there also to the book where you can access that as well. Which is taking the complexity out of concepts. Yeah, and I and it's interesting you asked about that. I mean, this the, it, it, this and what I really like about this book is you'll see at the back of it there are a ton of schools. Mm. So um, this this book was very much personal research. We tried everything that's in there was tried and tested with schools um we'd have an idea we'd go I don't know do you think it'll work and Andrew and I would go into schools and we'd try it what do you think teachers and so it was very much back forth back forth until we sort of got to a place where we thought okay we feel this is ready now to be put into a book because we feel it will be of value to others Mm. and just in looking at the pdfs right now the, the free pdfs um We have considerations for an online environment. We have conceptual inquiry, principles of planning, topics versus concepts, criteria for conceptual units of learning, and planning a unit of work. Uh, Questions for reflection as well. So those are free and accessible by um, teachers uh, going to the website, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. In closing the show, uh, talk about where people can find you on social media. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm at IGE Educators. We also have a Facebook page called IGE Andrea Mueller and Tanya Latanzio. I'm on LinkedIn as Tanya Latanzio, and I'm just getting my head around Instagram. Do you have any workshops coming up that uh, for people who might be interested? Yeah, I'm doing one with Jennifer Wattle. Um, we're doing one on uh, UDL, uh, Universal Design for Learning and Differentiation. And then I've got another one coming up with Anna Van Damme 
on uh, children and theory building and so the whole idea of conceptual learning in the early years. So that's coming up and then we'll be putting more on as well. Um, you know, obviously we used to do a lot of events live but we haven't done as much since we moved into this new realm um, but we're looking at doing a lot more of that. We did have a wonderful early years conference in May. It was incredible about materiality, creativity and the thinking child and, and that was amazing. So we're hoping to do something like that again. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Anne's been on the show a couple of times. I, I love my conversations with her. I've never met her. In yeah. Time. Yeah. Me too. So we're, so it's always a, again, you know, I mean, what a, you know, I did, um, I did a webinar with uh, Kath Murdoch last night. And so, you know, what, what a privilege to get to collaborate with these amazing educators, right? Yeah. And like I said, every time you do, you just learn something new and I've got a couple of other really exciting collaborations coming up too. Oh, great. Well, yeah. Anya, it's been great chatting. I enjoyed our discussion and uh, I really want to thank you for your time today. No, but thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm just going to close off the show and then you can just stay on and we'll say our goodbyes. Okay? okay. Thanks so much, Andy, for having me. It's just been a real joy. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Tanya Latanzio. And I hope you come back to listen to the future. Andy Vasily.